Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Disaster Diving Podcast. I'm Tatiana, and here we take deep dives into man-made disasters, their causes, and long-term impacts. Today, we will be talking about the Texas power crisis of 2021. Two days before the storm began, Harris County Judge Lena Hidalgo warned her constituents to prepare for the storm as they would for a hurricane. A week later, she could be found sleeping in the county's emergency operations center, her own home without power for three nights. Hundreds were left without clean water in their taps and no power with which to boil the unsafe water. So, before we get into today's episode, I really wanted to clarify one point. Texas is primarily Republican, and the infrastructure disasters happening there currently have been caused in large parts by officials in political positions. And that is really just a fact. However, I really don't want to come across like I'm advocating that one political view is the only correct one when it comes to infrastructure and one is not. For one thing, I'm Canadian, and our political parties vary much more greatly over the political spectrum, yet we've still had major infrastructure failures, some of which I'm going to cover at another time. For another, many of the decisions that led to the current disaster in Texas were made at times during the 1900s when the Republican Party was actually fundamentally different than what it is today. I really, as much as I don't want to get into political debates, I will say that nothing can excuse the horrible evil that occurred under the Trump administration. And I really can't say even before then, I was personally leaning to the American right end of the spectrum. But I do understand, essentially, an emphasis on deregulation, lowering taxes, and other key points of the Republican mantra. Merciless criticism of Republicans simply for being Republican will in no way improve public safety. Rather, we need to keep the focus on the background processes and errors in judgment that led to today's situation. Some of that might mean readjusting Republican policies where they diverge from public safety, which might mean a revised agenda of deregulation or more nuanced ways to deregulate. But I would also argue that for any political party whose policies diverge from public safety. And all political parties' policies have diverged from public safety at some point in history. Anyway, now let's move on from that. To understand the source of the winter storm disaster this year, we actually first have to do a little bit of a history lesson. We're going to take a trip back to the 1800s. An industry that boomed to life in the 1800s is something we mostly take for granted now the ice trade. As you can imagine, before the refrigeration and freezing technologies of today, there was no way to readily manufacture ice. Instead, ice had to be cut from places where it was naturally abundant and shipped to where it was desired. If you want a good example of this, think about Frozen. Uh, Kristoff was an ice trader. He dealt in ice, and that whole scene in the beginning with that lovely folk song was the ice traders going and cutting the ice and harvesting it. Cut ice would be packed in sawdust and shipped all over the world to places such as India, where ice was hard to come by naturally. In the United States, ice cut from northern states would be shipped down to southern ones. Texas had a particularly high demand for ice. 
In the late 1800s, early refrigeration techniques began to appear on the market. These techniques were of particular interest to the ice industry, as they allowed the ice to be stored for longer in unfavorable weather. Finally, in the 1880s, it became possible to manufacture ice itself, essentially ending the worldwide ice trade. However, this wasn't a pleasant little ice machine that you could put in your kitchen and enjoy the nice, unending ice supply. No, ice had to be produced in large factories, known as ice plants, and ice plants required a lot of power to run. Two of these plants existed in Austin, Texas, as Texas did have a large ice demand. More such plants popped up all over Texas throughout the end of the 19th century. To power these plants, utility companies began forming. By the end of the 1800s, utility companies existed throughout Texas. The ice plants eventually closed, but other big factories took their place, and electricity became commonplace in people's homes through the years that followed. However, thanks to the ice trade, Texas was actually fairly ahead of the game at this point, with a complex power network already established. The rest of the U.S. began to catch up, and then regulation began to catch up as well, as it always does, eventually. In 1935, Congress passed the National Power Act, giving the federal government the authority to regulate the transfer of electricity between the states. In response, the utility companies in Texas formed a mutual decision that they would not send any power at all out of state, because remember, this regulation only affected power transferred between states, not within a state. So they wanted to avoid this regulation, and presumably any taxes or extra costs that would come along with it. During World War II, these companies also formed formal alliances. This was needed due to the increased need for power along the Gulf Coast. This led to the formation of the Texas Interconnected System in 1941, which was to smooth that transfer of power to the Gulf Coast. So what we see so far is that these companies are ahead of the game. They are fairly better than what's established in the rest of the U.S., and they're working together at forming alliances and networks and councils in order to avoid regulation. In 1965, there was the worst blackout in U.S. history so far. Known as the Northeast Blackout, over 30 million people, over 80,000 kilometers, were left without electricity for 13 hours. This affected Connecticut, Massachusetts, New Hampshire, New Jersey, New York, Pennsylvania, Rhode Island, Vermont, and even Ontario, Canada, where I am. What caused it was a misfiring safety relay on one of the lines, which was programmed to cut off power if any of the protective equipment was not firing properly. While 13 hours may not sound like a huge deal for the average household, there were actually surgeons in hospitals completing surgeries using flashlights. And 800,000 people were trapped that entire 13 hours on the New York subway. Can you imagine being trapped on a subway, a packed, crowded subway, for 13 hours? I can't even choose. Would I want to be getting my surgery completed with a flashlight or would I want to be trapped on a subway? Nope, I'm never making that choice. That sounds like the worst thing in the world. The overall result of this blackout was new monitoring and metering systems that are still in use today, as well as new regulation meant to ensure the reliability of the U.S. power supply. Of course, the network of allied Texas utility companies wanted to avoid being tied into an overarching U.S. power grid that now looked inevitable for the rest of the country. This led them to form the Electric Reliability Council of Texas, otherwise known as ERCOT, in 1970. This may seem like a lot of unnecessary history, but it really is critical to understand just what ERCOT is and why it exists. 
As this organization was single-handedly responsible for this large Texan blackout during the storm a few weeks back, they exist due to about 100 years of dodging regulation. Regulation often leaves a bad taste in people's mouths, and the favorite line of many politicians is the need to cut red tape. And you know what? Fair enough. A lot of regulation can be unnecessary bureaucratic nonsense. It can be a way of ensuring that no taxes get dodged, or regulation can be painfully behind the times. Bad regulation has even been responsible for major disasters, including air crashes and infrastructure failures. However, a lot of regulation, especially for high-risk industries and critical infrastructure, exists to protect public safety. Dodging it can have severe consequences, especially if the decision to avoid such regulation is made by profit-driven business moguls and politicians, with no consult to risk specialists and safety professionals. Alright, so now we're back in the present day. What actually happened? What's the story I'm covering? On February 13th, a powerful winter storm developed over the Pacific Ocean and moved into the U.S. Due to the damage it was expected to cause, the Weather Channel gave this storm the unofficial name Winter Storm Yuri. But this wasn't given using any formal naming system, so I'm not really sure why a private channel would just give a name like that. I don't really get what the benefit is. Over the next few days, this storm would bring snow and ice to states that have traditionally seen very little winter weather and cause unprecedented damage to the Texas power system. The National Weather Service put 120 million Americans under winter storm and ice storm warnings. Generally, individuals were actually preparing fairly well, stocking up on water and other essentials, like many are used to preparing for hurricanes and tornadoes. And honestly, I have grown up somewhere that doesn't have the risk of earthquakes, tornadoes, hurricanes. We've had a few tornadoes in Ontario, but none in any town I've ever lived in. I am very impressed often by people's resiliency in these situations. I don't know how I would react. My home has never been at risk from natural weather. Um, The most we had was the ice storm in Toronto a few years back, but even that wasn't too bad. Like, it didn't affect me that much, although obviously it devastated a lot of people. But, you know, I, I just, I've never really been in a situation where my home and everything I've worked for that way is at risk. And I'm just, I'm always amazed seeing people just prepare for stuff like this, just matter of factly and carry on. It's, it shows, shows how strong people are. Anyway, what these people didn't realize was no matter how well they prepared, their critical infrastructure wasn't prepared. And I will say, look, we'll come back to why this happened, but sometimes infrastructure is not actually made to withstand weather very well. I mean, it should be designed at least around the weather you live in, but sometimes not even that. In Toronto, we had our streetcars, new streetcars that we ordered. Turns out they couldn't run in weather that was past, I think it was something like minus 10 And in Toronto, it gets regularly down below minus 10 pretty much every winter. So really, we had brand new streetcars that we could only use kind of half the year. It's very interesting sometimes how people, the people in charge of these decisions, at least, do not seem to plan for this stuff. While Texas was the only place in the U.S., in the U.S. being key there, where the storm caused major infrastructure failures, the storm did do widespread damage across other parts of the U.S. It also caused severe infrastructure damage in Mexico which we will cover. The storm caused a series of tornadoes, which touched down in several states, ranging in severity from EF0 to EF3. The most severe tornado was an EF3 and caused the deaths of three people in Brunswick, North Carolina. Before I jump into the impact this had on Texas, which is the area this episode is really focused on, I want to briefly address Mexico. They also had widespread power outages, equipment failures, and even over a dozen deaths. 
This was a tragedy for Mexico as well, a major one. Much like Texas, they also have an integrated political infrastructure system right now that isn't going to address the root cause of this tragedy. Rather than demanding winterization of their power equipment, their president, who does have ties to the coal industry, is using this event to promote his coal agenda and is planning to increase the use of coal through the country. I'd love to fully unpack the issue in Mexico, but... This episode is already going to be a long one just talking about the issues in Texas. So my heart goes out to those in Mexico, but for now back to Texas. Temperatures in Texas dropped below the ones in Anchorage, Alaska during the course of this winter storm. On February 16th, the Dallas-Fort Worth airport recorded a temperature of minus 19 degrees Celsius, or minus 2 degrees Fahrenheit for all of the Americans listening. Or 254 Kelvin, if anyone wants to use the only temperature scale that actually makes sense. 46 gigawatts, that is 40% of Texas's power grid, lost power. 4.5 million people across the state lost power. And due to frozen pipes and the cool temperatures in those unheated homes, many were also without water. The resulting water damage from burst pipes also made some homes unlivable, and long-term mold and water damage cleanup is still ongoing. Throughout the state, Thousands ran their pipes at a drip to prevent them from freezing, obviously, because you would not want your pipes to freeze. However, this resulted in the water system becoming depressurized, contaminating the supply and forcing a boil water order for half the state. Which, without electricity, was impossible for most residents. Besides the human tragedies, zoo animals also had cases of hypothermia throughout the state. Many humans tried to stay warm by heating their homes with electrical generators and grills, leading to around 450 carbon monoxide poisonings, many of them children. Call networks went down without power, preventing calls to 911. Dozens of deaths were attributed to the storm and the subsequent blackouts, including that of an 11-year-old boy and that of a 75-year-old man whose oxygen machine lost power. Governor Abbott issued a disaster declaration on February 12th, whereby he mobilized various departments, including the Texas Military Department for snow clearance and assistance to stranded stranded motorists. On February 14th, President Biden declared an emergency in the state of Texas, authorizing the Department of Homeland Security and the Federal Emergency Management Agency, FEMA, to provide emergency management throughout Texas. FEMA sent 60 generators, as well as water and blankets. Local churches, community centers, and other locations opened up warming stations for affected individuals, as well as asking for physical and monetary donations. Several mutual aid groups responded with supply and delivery distribution, particularly in Houston and Austin. Celebrities such as Beyonce and Reese Witherspoon teamed up with companies to provide monetary relief. Congresswoman Alexandria I do not know how to pronounce her name. I've seen it before. I know that she is from New York, I believe. Um, So Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. She organized a fundraiser to provide food, water, and shelter to affected Texans, raising $2 million in its first day. She followed up with a trip to Houston to help alongside volunteers with recovery. She, along with other Democrats, toured the damage left behind by the storm, as well as the distribution centers. She ended up raising $4.7 million. Power equipment in Texas was not winterized, as those temperatures were not typical for such a hot state. Initially, Governor Greg Abbott and many other politicians tried blaming the power outages purely on renewable sources of energy. However, only about 23% of the power grid in Texas is powered by renewable sources. They showed images on the news of frozen wind turbines. 
One of those images even showed a helicopter dropping de-icing liquid onto a wind turbine. But it turns out that image was actually from Sweden, and it was taken in 2015. To be clear, and to be fair, wind turbines did fail due to the cold temperatures in Texas. But so did all other types of power. Also, in other parts of the country that were also hit by this winter storm, wind turbines that were winterized did keep going. There are also year-round wind turbines in countries like Siberia. Of the power that was lost, 39% was from wind and solar generators, but 61% was from gas, coal, and nuclear generators. Generators powered by natural gas were frozen. Their moving parts didn't work. When the natural gas failed, the compressors that pushed the gas through the pipelines also failed. That meant even when the generators were back online, there was no natural gas supply, further extending the outage. In other parts of the U.S., if one part of the power grid fails, they can borrow from other parts. But Texas separated themselves on purpose. It's not just a matter of a state choosing to be generous or stingy in a power emergency in Texas. Texas is not set up to accept any supply from other power grids. At first, for those in charge, the situation was all about blame. As previously mentioned, many Republicans initially tried to blame renewable energy. This was clearly wrong and politically motivated. Democrats largely blamed Governor Greg Abbott. However, this situation was initiated long before he came into the picture. Eventually, Abbott and the others turned to ERCOT, a system of professionals that promised protection to the power companies and safety to the consumers that was supposed to prevent disasters like this from ever occurring. Abbott said at the time, this was a total failure by ERCOT. These are the experts. These are the engineers in the power industry. These aren't bureaucrats, or whatever the case may be. They are specialists, and the government has to rely upon these specialists to be able to deliver in these type of situations. So I would actually disagree with that quote there. ERCOT is not an independent body of experts bent on advising the government using the latest scientific advice. They exist to protect the profits of the power industry. They are very much bureaucrats. Bureaucrats isn't just a government phenomenon. ERCOT are a biased and bad and bureaucratic organization with far more funding and power than the regulator. The regulator, who is the Texas Public Utility Commission, is actually just a three-person commission with really no autonomy or power or money to stand up to ERCOT or the power companies. It's also really interesting when people see a bureaucratic body like ERCOT or government organizations and say, these must be the experts, because who gets those positions and those jobs is not actually that simple. Sometimes the position sounds like they're hiring someone who will be the subject matter expert, but when it actually comes to the application process, factors come into play that you don't think about. I'm a little bit personally biased right now because there was recently a position that I qualified for here with the federal government, specifically Transport Canada. However, the Civil Aviation Office is located in Quebec, and they decided to make this bilingual mandatory, Um, likely because many others in the office do speak French, which is reasonable. But I can absolutely say with a degree of certainty, they're not going to get someone with my credentials and experience. They'll be settling in order to get a bilingual person. It's a very niche area of risk management that they're looking for. I don't mean to sound bitter about that. I'm just saying that when government or government adjacent jobs come up, you don't know if you're getting the subject matter expert or the top of their field, um, because there's lots of factors that come into it that are not strictly just who's best for the position. So I wonder what credentials those who work for ERCOT or the Texas Public Utility Commission actually do have in the end. What we do know is that the essential regulator-regulatee relationship in Texas is broken, and that is due to the existence of ERCOT. That organization, which is made up of money 
and power protects the interests of the power companies, and it throws the power balance into flux. The power companies actually hold more power and influence than their regulators. Tim Morstead, who's the associate director of AARP Texas, said this about the subject. Too often, power companies get exactly what they want out of the Texas Public Utility Commission. Even well-intentioned PUC staff are outgunned by armies of power company lawyers and their experts. I do want to point out that the chair of ERCOT lives in Michigan and the vice chair lives in California. They really have no reason to be concerned if Texas is prone to power outages and adverse weather conditions. Furthermore, one of the news articles I did research into it said that of the 15 current ERCOT board members, 11 of them have past or current ties to the energy industry in Texas, which is clear motive not to protect consumers, only the companies. According to a political science professor at UC Santa Barbara, quote, at the core of ERCOT structure is total trust in markets. To design a system such as ERCOT, you have to believe that the markets are better at coordinating than centralized planning, which is a very strong statement. I know that some may argue that this storm was a one-off. How often does Texas see snow? Some necessary changes will be brought about by this freak weather on the off chance it happens again, but it probably won't. The thing about that argument is that this has been happening a lot since the 2010s, even earlier. There were dress rehearsals for this storm on not one, but four separate occasions. So let's start in 2011. A severe storm caused equipment malfunctions, which made it necessary for ERCOT to initiate rolling blackouts. Legislature ordered a study to find what made this extreme measure necessary. Experts hired by the Texas Public Utility Commission concluded that power-generating companies had failed to understand critical failure points that could cause equipment to stop working in cold weather. One power company named Luminant, remember their name, uh, they own a large number of plants through Texas, they were fined $750,000 at this time. An investigation found that they hadn't adequately prepared for cold weather, failing to install extra insulation, windbreaks, or heating their facilities to protect their equipment. There was one light in this time. Just an interesting side note, which won't come up again. The city of El Paso, Texas, actually separated from the rest of the state's power grid, and it runs its own supply, one which isn't protected, quote-unquote, by ERCOT. After the 2011 storm, El Paso forced its grid to winterize, and the city of El Paso did not lose power come the 2021 winter storm. In 2014, a cold snap that lasted 12 hours led to many generator failures. In this case, there were no rolling blackouts, although ERCOT came close, mostly because the event didn't actually last very long and it wasn't quite as severe as the events in 2011 or 2021. However, that didn't stop ERCOT, power companies, and regulators from calling this event a success for the power companies and a sign that preventative measures were in fact taken after the 2011 event and that they were working. This, however, ignored the fact that the 2011 event hadn't sparked any preventative measures. In fact, the study ordered in 2011 also came out in 2014, and that, coupled with further failures in the 2014 cold snap, led the Texas Public Utility Commission to recommend changes that would require energy companies to identify and address all potential failure points, including any effects of weather design limitations. In the safety industry, we call this switching from a reactive culture to a proactive culture, and it's usually the aim of regulators and risk-based industries, including healthcare, aviation, and infrastructure. Of course, Texas was not about to have that. The power company Luminant argued that this requirement was unnecessary. They argued that it, quote, may or may not <laughs> identify weak links, but trying to prepare for adverse weather events is pretty much pointless, and every weather event is different. 
eventually the requirement did change because of their arguments to just have them make plans for how to address reasons for past blackouts. They do not have to try and prepare for future ones. And there wasn't even any enforcement for that measure, so that was useless too. I don't really know where to go with that statement. For lack of an academic term, I'm just going to call it stupid. We do predict weather. We predict it a lot, sometimes with a certain margin of error, and we do act on those predictions. The thing is, I don't have to tell you that we prepare for weather. Anyone who has ever flown on an airplane or driven in a car in winter can tell you that we absolutely make risk assessments and identify hazards involved in winter operations. What doesn't make sense to me is that when it comes to politics or law, you can make these arguments that will hold up in court, that will hold up in legislature, that would never hold up if you were actually just talking to a friend. And I don't know why that is. I don't know why the arguments no longer have to be rational, so long as you're paying a lawyer enough, but that is the way it is. There were also major winter weather events that accumulated in rolling blackouts in 1989 and 2003, but those events didn't attract as much coverage. So this same power company, Luminan, has also defended themselves during this most recent 2021 storm, saying that they provided 25 to 30% of the grid, which was much higher than their usual 18%, so technically they were meeting the increased demand. Of course, they were also the main company that charged absolutely ridiculous amounts for their power during the crisis, and is facing at least one lawsuit of price gouging. As for whether or not they had the capacity to provide even more power, or whether they faced any equipment failures during this storm, they refused to say. So why do power companies and ERCOT, all in Texas, seem so resistant to preparing for winter weather? If they're committed to maximum profit, shouldn't they want to supply their customers with reliable electricity? The answer to that lies in yet another system of deregulation. Texas power companies actually compete for customers on an open market. They are one of a few states that employ the system, with past politicians, and even current politicians, arguing that this lowers the cost of electricity due to increased competition between power companies. It's been two decades of having this in place in Texas and in other states, and it's safe to say that this theoretical price decrease never actually materialized. What this system does, though, is it twists the open market to ensure that power companies have no financial incentive to produce enough electricity to get the state through a crisis, only incentive to ramp up prices during these times where supply does not meet demand. Other states with this deregulated system have made reforms when crises occurred that made this open, that this was a clear market failure. But thanks to the power of ERCOT, Texas has resisted any type of reform. The 2014 cold snap was a positive financial windfall for power generating companies. During an earnings call made by Centerpoint Energy in Houston, an executive named Joe McGoldrick stated the following. This business, I'm just making up his voice, I haven't heard it. This business has benefited significantly from increased demand during the polar vortex earlier this year. To the extent that we get another polar vortex, or whatever, absolutely will be opportunistic and take advantage of the conditions. That's the end of the quote. I hope you enjoyed my voice there. This year, the communications director of that company said that these comments don't reflect the values of their company. However, they did in fact make a killing during this winter storm. During this year's storm, prices jumped from $35 per megawatt hour to ERCOT's maximum of $9,000 per megawatt hour. Yes, you heard that right. ERCOT does have maximum price, a protection for consumers. Do you feel protected that your prices can jump from $35 to $9,000 per megawatt hour? Because clearly anyone who can afford $35 per megawatt hour can afford $9,000 per megawatt hour, no problem. 
Bills as high as $16,000 were issued to customers, with many owing $2,500 a day for power use during the storm. The power plants apparently made more money over this period of time than the last three years combined. The Texas Public Utility Commission ordered electric companies to suspend the disconnections and delay sending invoices or bill statements. But delaying the inevitable is about the extent of their powers. If the customer believes they've been a victim of price gouging, a hard battle to win in a state with so few customer protections, it's their burden to sue the power company, which is expensive in itself. I know that some would say that profit for business is in the end better for the population of Texas due to how it drives the economy. However, I would like to point out that the natural gas and oil industries actually lost a lot of money during this experience as they couldn't operate without power. The hit to the economy was more than the money accumulated by the power companies. Plus, whatever the profits, the power companies also have to pay to fix their damaged equipment. And for those who don't like being taxed, it was all tax dollars that went to the state's emergency response, that went to the federal government's emergency response. That was a lot of tax dollars being spent on something very expensive, which if we had just mandated that companies pay to regulate their or winterize their equipment, that money never would have needed to be spent on this. Another protection ERCOT has in place is, in fact, weather prediction. <laughs> they employ meteorologists to predict oncoming weather that could be troublesome for the state's energy supply. However, due to the lack of motivation or regulation guiding the actual power companies to prepare for adverse weather, the warnings from ERCOT are actually mainly targeted at consumers. Before this storm, ERCOT advised consumers to limit their power usage to avoid overburdening the system. When it comes down to it, this is inadequate preparation to ensure appropriate infrastructure to the state. So, ugh, conclusions from this. What was the aftermath? What happened? All of that. Abbott called addressing the ERCOT situation an emergency issue for the 2021 legislative season. This means that a bill could be passed within the first 60 days of the legislative season. Session. Sorry, legislative session. He is calling to mandate the winterization of generators and power plants. The chair of ERCOT has stated that if this is passed, the cost will ultimately fall to the consumers via raising rates, as government money is not forthcoming. In response, Abbott has stated that he will ensure the necessary funding for winterization. The Texas State House Speaker Dade Fillon called for committee hearings to investigate ERCOT by the end of February. The Texas Public Utility Commission and ERCOT both had to testify at these hearings. On March 1st, D.N.T. Walker the chairwoman of the Public Utility Commission, resigned after a week of tough questioning from Texas legislators at the hearings. Governor Greg Abbott appointed someone new to that position. However, he was recorded stating that he would protect utility investors and their profits in a 48-minute call. He resigned his post a week later, two hours after the call was leaked. On February 19th, a lawsuit was filed in Nueces County, which raised allegations against ERCOT, claiming that there were repeated warnings of weaknesses in the state's electric power infrastructure that were ignored. Also named in the lawsuit was the American Electric Power Utility Company. An additional lawsuit against ERCOT was filed in Fort Bend County. The company has raised claims of sovereign immunity to the legal cases, a legal principle that protects some government agencies from lawsuits if the money spent on legal fees would disrupt key government services. This defense has been used by ERCOT in past legal cases and has been upheld by courts, so whether or not any action will be taken against them is unlikely. A class action lawsuit was also filed against Texas electricity retailer Gritty for potential price gouging by a Chambers County resident after receiving a $9,000 bill for electricity during the week of the storm compared to an average $200 bill. 
The Texas Public Utility Commission is doing an investigation of ERCOT and the response to this crisis. The Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton is also launching an investigation into ERCOT. The mayor of Colorado City blamed his citizens for not preparing properly for the storm, stating that the strong will survive while the weak will perish. He later had to resign over those comments. I have nothing to say about that except that he is a living human farthead. The FERC is also completing a separate investigation, but they're federal and have limited power to make changes to the electricity system in Texas. They also completed an investigation in 2014, but nothing came of it then either. The reason I haven't gone into all the different levels of failures here is that I actually have very little to say myself about this one. There were failures at every level, and consumers were ultimately the victims. Could this happen again in the future? Yes, absolutely it could. I would go further than that and say that it's going to happen. It will happen in the future, and there's going to be nothing done to prevent it. Nothing has changed, and nothing is likely to change. My personal advice is if you live in Texas, prepare your home. Plan a winter emergency kit. Research safe ways to heat your home if the power goes out. Plan for what you would need for two to four days without power and without water, at least. I'm going to end this one with a quote from one of my favorite articles that I read while researching. The author, Robinson Mayer, did a very well-researched and witty overview of this issue. He says, Perhaps ERCOT's strangest and most un-American trait is that it strips citizens of their democratic authority. Instead of being able to hold someone accountable when the power goes out, Texans are told that the market, like a rain god, has failed again. You might say that ERCOT, in its majestic equality, allows rich and poor alike to think like an economist. Frankly, Texans have better things to do. Moreover, if the freedom to survive a snowstorm is worth protecting, if it is a freedom that we owe to one another, it is a freedom worth planning for. Markets are good tools. They aren't our only tools. Government by auction is no way to live. Indeed, Texans are dying of it. All right, that's the episode for this week. Thank you very much. And please follow me on Instagram at Disaster Diving Podcast or on Twitter at Disaster Diving Podcast or send me an email at DisasterDivingPodcast at gmail.com. Thank you. And I'll talk to you next Friday. Bye.